You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. So we work with employers on on a daily basis that are are trying to be compliant right now. And, And because of that, we can have really practical discussion with our employers. We don't give legal advice, so that's my disclaimer. The information comes in rapidly, as I'm sure you're all used to. I think this is this is old hat by now. We're getting used to the fact that that so much info is coming out, and we're getting used to the fact that what we talk about and what you know now may be clarified or maybe a little bit different later. So it's coming in rapidly. There are changes, and further clarifications may come up after the discussion today. So that's also my second disclaimer. I'm Michelle Camayo. I am the compliance leader here at Bolton and Company. Today, my guest speaker is Pat McKiernan, and he's from Plan Resource Group at RBC. So Pat, can you give us a little bit more uh, detail about what you do? Yeah, no, thank you for having for having me on. Um, glad to try to share some of the information we've been learning as well. So Plan Resource Group is a uh, 401k and retirement plan advisory group based in Southern California uh, with RBC Wealth Management. Uh, we essentially serve as plan advisor uh, to retirement plans of all sorts, uh, 401k plans, defined benefit pension plans. Uh, and we really operate in three main areas. We serve as a fiduciary to plan sponsors, uh, monitoring investments and uh, fee structures. We get involved in plan design uh, for plans, uh, making sure the plan is designed well to attract and retain employees. And then in some cases, uh, we get involved with financial wellness and employee education programs actually designing and in some cases uh, delivering those. Uh, so uh, w- w- sort of a, 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 a positive for us today, uh, for today's call uh, particularly, is that we're agnostic we don't represent any proprietary um, 401k or retirement plan record-keeping products or investment funds. Um, so we have been uh, talking to a lot of our record-keeping partners, the many that we work with, um, to get their take um, on these CARES Act provisions. So um, happy to be here and kind of share a lot of what we've learned up to this point. Thank you so much. I know I'm looking forward to learning more about 401k as well or the provision. Now, I I didn't hear you say 403b, and I know we probably have a lot of employers on the line that have a 403b. Is that something that, that, is that included in the retirement plans that you work with? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. So, yeah, we do consult to a fair amount of nonprofits. We do work a fair amount in the 403b space. And importantly, with regards to the CARES Act, um, you know, many, if not all, those provisions um, are also going to be applying to plans like 403Bs. Okay, good. Good to know. All right. So the objective of our discussion today is, is to have a conversation that helps employers along the way. And what I find is that, and, and what I do is I work with employers on a daily basis, And it seems like a lot of them have grasped the concepts that are floating out there now in this, in this COVID-19 world, 
But the HR leaders and the business owners, they just want validation of what they're reading, that second set of eyes, if you will. And this is where during this weekly call that I'm hoping we kind of provide a little bit that, of that for our employers. So today, as usual, what we're going to do is go over uh, some updates from last week. We'll, we'll, obviously, we're going to keep talking about all the key topics, and, and so that includes FFCRA. We talked about it in prior episodes, but we're going to keep talking about it because I know that it's just you have to hear something multiple times when it comes to compliance for it to sink in, sort of just the nature of compliance because it's complex and it has different facets. Also, we'll do in today's episode, we'll have our weekly segment, the Toilet Paper Talk. You all know this is my favorite. It's a review of things that have become incredibly relevant, like toilet paper. And then our guidance wish list, and we finish up with frequently asked questions from the past week, and then we'll go to your questions that you have posed uh, via the question pane. So a few summaries, a uh, few updates, if you will. I would say that the past week was uh, has been slower. So if it's any indication that looks like the pieces of legislation or the major pieces are already out, or at least they're taking a little bit of a break, which I'm sure is welcome for some. And so there's not a, there's not a lot that's new compared to prior weeks. The first is that the IRS did officially extend the 5,500 due dates for some plans. So that's good news. It gives employers a little bit longer to sign off on that form 5,500. And for, the, for employers on the line, I imagine that your broker is, is handling the drafting of the 5,500. Um, but if you need extra time to kind of review for some plan years, then you'll have that. Last week for LA City employers, the paid sick leave ordinance was signed into law. And for employers with employees or locations in San Francisco, the annual reporting has been canceled for the HCSO. That's great news. Normally the deadline is at the end of this month. Some news here in California, San Jose and San Francisco will soon have paid sick time ordinance as well addition to any existing leaves that are already law in California or in their localities. There, oh, there was an update just, I believe this was last night, the San Jose mayor did sign the ordinance into law. So the, the San Jose ordinance is now law and it became effective on April 7th. So you wanna pay attention to that if you have any locations or employees in San Jose. And Finally, the 401k provisions or retirement provision in, in the CARES Act is now garnering attention. So we know that the CARES Act was signed in the law. Gosh, I guess it's been a few weeks now. And not, I, there wasn't a lot of buzz around the 401k provisions as, you know, for the first couple of weeks. And, but now there's a lot more buzz and, and Pat will talk about that. All right. Yeah. Speaking of that, Pat, take I, it away. <laughs> so yeah, and I think it's I think you're right about that, Michelle. It, it seemed, you know, when when the CARES Act was first signed into law at the end of March, uh, you know, I, I will say that most of our clients in our practice were certainly more concerned uh, with some other uh, coronavirus relief measures. You know, mainly the 
the Paycheck Protection Program um, through the SBA and, 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 and some other items. Uh, it, you know, now as they've kind of waded through that, you know, we are finding really it's it's really accelerated this week um, and maybe a little bit towards the end of last week where uh, it seems as if plan sponsors are now really kind of wading into this a little bit more. Um, so I, I think maybe what I can do is just try to cover, and again, for some of you on the call, this may be a little redundant, um, but it never hurts, as I, as I think Michelle said, to maybe hear it more than once or twice. Uh, I'll kind of cover you know, the participant relief side some of the things in the provisions for plan sponsor relief, and then just we'll kind of dive right into um, what the provisions are with regards to distributions and loans. So from a, and again, I think all kind of the disclaimer here is, you know, this is what is out so far. Um, you know, there are still a number of coronavirus related relief measures, uh, I would say in, in the proposal stage, but I think we were all, you know, all those of us in the retirement industry we're very pleased that Congress was able to enable at least these provisions that we're going to talk about today. But having said that, there there may be, and I, I think likely will be more to come. Um, so, in, in terms of participant relief, um, the, the the main the, what's been getting the most attention are that the, that there is a new distributable event. It's it's basically a hardship withdrawal, but it's 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 not. It's it's being called a coronavirus-related distribution, or CRD. Um, that's sort of the new lingo there, and, and we'll talk about that. Um, loan access for participants has been increased along with repayment flexibility uh, for those loans. Uh, there was a waiver of 2020 uh, required minimum distribution requirements, so we'll talk about that. And Something that you know was getting, I think, was getting a fair amount of attention even before the coronavirus came onto the scene. Um, so there's some help in, in in the form of student loan um, repayments from employer to employee that, that we'll talk about. Um, from the sponsor standpoint, uh, for those that have defined benefit pension plans, there's been a little bit of a break on the funding requirements. Uh, We'll get into uh, some of the amendments uh, that the deadline for um, plan sponsors that adopt these COVID-19 relief measures, uh, the deadline for actually amending plan documents has been extended all the way up to 2022, actually. Um, we talked about the student loan repayments. Um, and then the Department of Labor uh, is going to be extending deadlines for other various plan notices um, that you all as plan sponsors know you have to, to, to get out there. And I think there'll be more to come on that as well. So let's kind of dive into all this. Um, so starting with the distributions. So this is obviously something that, you know, we as plan consultants and going out talking to participants about, you know, financial wellness and staying on the path towards retirement, um, you know, is not something we, we really like to promote. Um, but, you know, given what's been going on, the unemployment numbers, et cetera, um, you know, there is now help for participants that really do need it. And I, and, and the, the main form of that are these, coronavirus-related distributions that are now available. Um, so employees that are participants in a plan 
can take distributions anytime you know, technically it's retroactive. So it's January 1st, 2020 through December 31st of this year. They can take a distribution from their retirement plan. They can take up to $100,000 and that's, uh, that, that's an aggregate. So they could take 60,000 from their 401k and $40,000, let's say from an IRA that they may have. Um, so importantly, there is no 10% penalty um, early withdrawal penalty to pull this money out. There's no 20% mandatory withholding. So a participant could essentially take all their money out uh, with, with no taxes. Um, and the income taxes on these distributions can be paid over a three-year period. So, uh, or, you know, they can take it out sooner uh, or they, they, they can pay it back sooner uh, if, if, if they want to. Um, but really what this is doing is it's giving participants the ability to pull out their money from their 401k plan. Uh, they have three years to pay it back and they have three years to pay the taxes. Um, but, you know, basically a third, a third, a third. Uh, I want to kind of put in perspective what you're saying from someone who does not know retirement plans that well. It, it sounds like you're, you're saying there are two new provisions that have come out of this. One was the corona, coronavirus-related uh, hardship withdrawals. So I could, yeah. as a participant, I could then go to my 401k and withdraw money without, ha without a penalty. Correct. And then, and, okay, okay, good. And then, so the other part is loan access. So if, if I didn't want to withdraw the money, then I would, uh, then I could take out a loan against my 401k. You could, and it's that, yeah, that's the other part I was going to jump into. And mm -hmm. importantly, for both the loans that I'll talk about in a second, but also for the distributions that we were just talking about, um, you know, there, there, there are requirements that have to be met by the participant um, in order to either you know, take advantage of the distribution or take advantage of the, sort of these enhanced loan provisions. Um, so I, I just, I want to make that point. And the other point I want to make is that these are optional. So if employers, plan sponsors are not required to offer these distributions or these enhanced loan provisions to their participants. Although I'll tell you, I mean, obviously I think Michelle, you and I talked about this earlier this week, the, the optics of not offering it to a participant, uh, you know, is probably not good. Um, so I, I, in our practice, almost across the board, uh, you know, every employer is, you know, choosing to to offer these provisions to their participants. Um, you know, I, I, I think I, maybe we can talk about in a few minutes how they're choosing to communicate that information to the mm -hmm. participants. Um, but and they do have to qualify. So. Uh, you know, I think other another important point here is that the plan sponsor and also the, the, the plan record keeper, you know, the fidelities of the world, the John Hancock's of the world, principals, et cetera, they do not need to validate the participant's claim. They, they can take the participants, basically take their word for it, that they are experiencing some sort of financial consequence as a result of being laid off due to the coronavirus. Um, having their hours reduced, uh, maybe they're unable to work because of childcare. That's actually, you know, part of part of the provision. 
um, you know, they've been quarantined, furloughed, the, the business has been closed. And then there's a line in there, uh, literally, that the quote is other factors to be determined by the Secretary of Treasury. Um, so th the requirements are pretty broad in terms of who wow. so Pat, to do this. Sorry, Pat. So I, I so I, that that begs the question, if 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 the record keepers like Fidelity isn't going to validate the the withdrawal, then what does that mean for me if I if I don't really if I maybe don't have a valid reason under the provisions, yeah. but I do it anyway, am I going to have, is the rubber going to meet the road at some point? Am I going to be caught by the IRS? I mean, what, do we know what that looks like? So, you know, like a lot in this, right, it, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, this has all just come out, right? And, and none of this has been seasoned long enough for us to know that answer. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. That everyone, makes sense. We, that's... <laughs> It, with everyone we've spoken to, right, it's it's going to be an audit item, right? If if you as a taxpayer, if you're audited, you know, that's, I'm imagining that that is where, you know, you're where the rubber might hit the road. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you may have to substantiate that you were, you know, that you were impacted um, by this and, you know, in, in some way. Okay, so that, that makes sense. Now, I had a, we have a question here, and, and maybe this is a good time to bring it up. Uh, someone entered a question, if the employee has not lost a job or, or, or any reduced hours or the ability to work, but the spouse has, can yeah. the, the employee qualify for the hardship withdrawal? Yeah. So that's a question that actually had just come up this week. Uh, and, and it's really interesting. I Talking to the way the record keepers some of the record keepers are interpreting that. The answer to that, I mean, we, we've been told, you know, technically, no. Um, you know, you as you as the husband, you as you know, you you might be the husband, but your wife, uh, let's say, is the you know the major breadwinner, and she lost her job. Uh, you know, are you is is that technically a reason that you can pull money out of your four hundred one k plan? Um, you know, we talked to one record keeper that they said, you know, they're interpreting the answer to that as they, you know, they, that, that you can't. Um, but again, we've also talked to others, Michelle, that have said, you know, again, um, the feeling is that, you know, when, again, when the rubber hits the road, you know, it's, the IRS might be kind of lenient on this. Um, so, you know, that's, a, I, I think, yet to be determined. I'm, I'm sure that there probably is. You know, maybe an accountant or a labor attorney out there that, you know, by this point might have more of a clear um, answer on that. But, um, you know, I think that's kind of yet to be determined. That would be, you know, my answer at, at, at this point. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, this is, yeah. The reality is that if, you know, someone's going to need their, if somebody needs that money, they need that money, right? Um and you, you know, just there's, there's been so much flexibility with all of this. I would find it hard to believe that someone would be, you know, penalized for, you know, taking money out to pay their bills because their spouse, you know, lost their job. But you know, again, it's it's yet to be determined. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we talked about the, we talked about the about the distributions, and then the, the the other provision, like I said, has to do with loans. And in this provision, 
um, the loan limit was increased uh, to $100,000 or 100% of the vested account balance. So again, this is optional. Uh, it's, it's another optional uh, provision that, that an employer can add. Um, but there is a window to take action on this. So it's basically 180 days from the time the CARES Act went into effect. So, you know, basically six months. So, you know, it's, uh, later in September, um, you know, that's when the window closes on this. And so, you know, we've had some participants, uh, plan sponsors ask us, you know, do we need to notify, you know, our our participants about this? How do we notify them? Are, are we required to? You know, there's nothing that is, uh, you know, forcing plan sponsors in any specific way to notify participants that these provisions are going into effect. But, you know, again, if you're going to be offering the loan provision, you know, because there is there is this six-month deadline, you know, you, you, you obviously, you know, probably want to want to publicize it um, so right. the participants have time to either take action or at least just mull it over um, and so what that provision does is it allows for uh, new loans uh, it also allows for deferral of loan payments and this is sort of a big deal um, so for both new loans and existing loans participants can delay their their loan payments for up to one year so the, the interest will still accrue, uh, but obviously it does give the participants a break uh, on these payments. So again, this is optional to be offered. Um, and, and, and the same uh, you know, self-certification for this would be required, um, that they've been impacted by the coronavirus and, and the, the, it's not up to the plan sponsor to validate that, that claim. Um, Pat, if if I am if I'm an employer or a plan sponsor, who am I talking to about whether I should opt in or opt out of these provisions? Would it be someone in in your role? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely you you know this is something you want to work with your plan advisor on because you know mm -hmm. hopefully your plan advisor has their arms around the demographics and you know sort of the pulse of your company a little bit. I you know really, Michelle, I. I've heard this term over and over the last couple of weeks from you know, folks that do what I do, from labor attorneys that we work with. Again, the and that's the, you know the optics of not offering this is, is not good. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I, I've actually, frankly, have not heard of a company. I'm sure there's some out there, but I haven't heard of a of an employer that is that is not offering this. But I think to your point, you know, what really needs to be thought through. Is how is it being communicated? Um, you know, this is something I was going to talk about in a little bit, but really, you know, there's on one extreme, it's hey, let's put together flyers to really publicize and lead people to uh, take a hundred thousand dollars out of their retirement, and then the other side of it is not publicizing it at all, and so you know, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle there. Um, what we've been doing with our plan sponsor clients is trying to craft a message to the participants, um, you know, really trying to encourage them to, to call our staff 
um, for the, you know, for the employers that, you know, don't have 5,000 employees, you know, if they're an employer with, you know, a smaller number of employees, you know, call our staff or, 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 or talk to people in the HR department to talk this through and, and, and learn about the options because, you know, it ideally what we think it should, it should be kind of a, you know, step-by-step process. You know, you, you have these unemployment benefits that are available that, you know, are, are more robust than normal. You have stimulus checks that, that are being sent. Um, there, you know, is an eviction moratorium. Um, there's assistance by lenders on uh, mortgages that, 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 you know, you can't make your mortgage payment. So there's a number of avenues uh, a participant can go down and exhaust before they, you know, dig into their 401k plan. Um, and again, you know, there's going to be folks that just, you know, the reality is that they just need the money. Um, but, you know, obviously, you know, you, 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 you want to do everything you can to keep your employees on track towards retirement. And, you know, in some cases, Michelle, you know, this could derail that um, or delay that, you know, for a number of years. Um, so, so, Crafting that is something that I think, you know, working with your advisor on, and, and I've noticed this week in particular, you know, again, this to me tends to be the week that um, the plan sponsors are now really starting to sort of tackle that. And, you know, it's email blast and, you know, sending letters out to the participants. Right. It's funny that you that you say that because we were talking, at the, you and I were talking at the beginning of this week. And I had not, I paid very little attention to the 401k provisions, probably like um, most others that don't work on 401ks. And, and you said, oh, this is so timely because plan sponsors are sending out info. And, and I said, oh, I haven't heard anything come out of uh, Bolton and Company, you know, with regards to this. And the next, you know, like two days later or the next day, then we, our uh, internal staff also got an email with regards to this as well. So that you were spot on when you said like, oh, plan sponsors are starting to send out that communication. So I think maybe if employers are listening, it it might be worth it to say, well, has your company done so? And and what needs to happen for for your company to do that since it seems to be the time that everyone else is doing it? Yeah, and you know what what we're seeing and what we're at least in our practice working with our plan sponsor clients on is um you know for the companies for instance that have employee internet sites um you know creating you know a, a, obviously they may already have created it you know a coronavirus you know resource center or assistance center sort of a microsite within their internet site um you know for particularly for larger employee employers um you know putting these resources perhaps on that internet site, um, again, to maybe, you know, virtually at least walk them through all these other um, relief measures that are available. Um, I think, you know, we had one plan sponsor this week. I think they summed it up really well. They said, um, you know, maybe we're not going to title this email blast, um, you know, read here to learn how to take money out of your 401k plan. (laughs) you know, maybe, maybe the title, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe the title is going to be, um, you know, learn, you know, click here to learn about you know, the the 
the different assistance avenues that are available for you, right? And just 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 to learn about all of them because this is this is just one of them. And you know, there's a number of them. I mean, something else that we didn't even mention yet um, is you know the act also has waivers of required minimum distribution. So for those that are old enough that you know, over 70 and a half, um, they would typically need to take their mandatory distribution this year from a plan. Um, you know, obviously given what the market's done, although it's, it seems to have been recovering a little bit more of late, but um, you know, folks that normally have to take the required minimum distribution from 401k plans, uh, IRAs, 403Bs, they're not gonna have to do that this year for 2020. Um, so they're not going to have to, you know, one, possibly sell investments at these low prices, and two, um, uh, they're not going to have to, you know, pay the taxes on that this year. Um, so, you know, that's that's one issue. Um, and then something else that is that was included in it, um, this may be the last part of it that I'll talk about. Um, so even before the coronavirus, as I said before, came on the scene, there was a lot of talk an interest in ways to help workers with student loan debt. And obviously during this crisis, it's become even more of a burden. Um, so, you know, two things. One, talking about these different things that employees can consider doing before they pull money out of their plan. Um, student loan interest um, has, though those student loan payments have been um, basically deferred um, for a number of months. And importantly, we just found this out uh, earlier this week, something that I think has been overlooked. Obviously, it applies to students that have student loan debt, but also some of the, um, um, the, the loans that are through the government that the parents sign for, and maybe the parents are making student loan payments on, many of those have also been deferred. Um, and in some oh, cases, so the payment you know, plus or the parent plus parent loan. is that what they call those parent plus? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And so, and so, you know, in some cases, you know, that's a big chunk of someone's budget, right? Um, mm -hmm. Especially if they have, you know, more than one kid in school um, at at a time. So, um, but but also for those employers that had in place programs to help employees with student loan repayments. Um, those payments that the employer makes to the employee would now be excludable from their income. So an employer can make a payment towards student loan debt for an employee up to $5,250 this year, and that would be a tax, that would be tax free to the employee. So that was a provision that was included in the CARES Act. Um, again, you know, some employers may not be in any position to do that. Um, but we've read of some that actually are, um, and 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 that and there is some interest in the, in this. Um, so again, you know, I think it. You know, the good news is is that the Congress did get this approved. There is definitely help out there for you know working Americans that 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 are in a in a tough spot that are out of work. Um, but I think also, you know, I think every plant sponsor should be really considering how they're going to communicate this and do everything they can to, you know, help the, help the participant, you know, make, make the right decision. Um, because obviously, you know, these distributable events, Michelle, um, you know, the reality is that 
you know, we know just from studies that have been done for years and years that um, in situations like loans and other things where a participant can pull money out of their plan, very rarely is it paid back in its entirety. Um, and, you know, in this case, mm -hmm. you know, you anything to believe that, it, that it's going to be different. So to the degree, right. that we, you know, this, this balancing, let's help the participants out as much as we can and, you know, make them comfortable. Um, but let's also, you know, make sure that um, they're aware of the other, you know, relief measures that are available to them. Right. So let's let's go ahead and take one more question right now, and then we'll move on. Uh, does the we had a question? Does the distribution or the loan need a backup, like a medical bill or a furlough letter? So I'm assuming they're they're just asking, does it need documentation? I think you touched on this, but if, could you just answer this one specifically? No. So again, our understanding, and you know, talking to the record keepers and everyone else, is that um, no, it's it is. For the purposes of the plan sponsor or the record keeper, those are not things that they're going to be requesting or collecting. Um, but to your point earlier, Michelle, you know, the rubber might hit the road on this at some point. It may be that the taxpayer is audited and may have to substantiate that they did have some sort of coronavirus related impact. So, you know, I think just, you know, you obviously, if there is something that, you know, you have that you could retain. Um, you know, you, you, you may want to just keep it for that. But but again, from the plan sponsor standpoint, no, our understanding is there's nothing that they need to be um, collecting or validating. Okay, so essentially nothing needs to be given to the plan sponsor or the record keeper like a fidelity. But certainly if it were me <laughs> with um, the IRS, I don't like to mess around. So I would keep any documentation that's relevant in my in my uh, tax folder, if you will. Yeah. yeah. I mean, imagine okay. the burden of this. If, you know, I mean, I think it was that was something they wanted to put in there uh, for sure was not to have to burden the plan sponsor with verifying, you know, imagine the time spent validating all of these claims. Right, right, yeah. So it makes sense. Also a little dangerous, but makes sense. Okay, so what we'll do is we'll talk, we'll, we have a few more things in our toilet paper segment that we'll bring up. This is the FFCRA or 62, HR 6201. We've talked about this every week and, and this is because it seems like every week we still get questions regarding this and the questions kind of have shifted to now that employers are administering these leaves, they have started to ask questions that are related to documentation that they need to collect, as well as um, some of these one-off situations that don't seem to fit into one of the qualifying reasons. Now, on the, on the screen here, you can see that there are two major provisions affecting employers under FFRCA. Emergency FMLA, which we call EFMLA, and emergency paid sick leave, which we call EPSL. It is clear that group health benefits must be maintained throughout these either one of these leaves, so don't forget about that. And emergency FMLA only has one reason to, uh, or one qualifying reason to take this leave, and that is for those unable to work or telework because they have to care for a minor child, child if the child's school has been closed. So both provisions are applicable to those private sector employers with fewer than 500 employees and all governmental entities. As we say each week during our episode, this is, there's a very narrow exemption for employers with fewer than 50 
And we will talk about that later on. Both of these provisions mandate paid time. Both have an exclusion for employers of employees who are healthcare providers or emergency responders. And of course, the employer tax credits are available and they're there to offset the cost that the employer is incurring to uh, with these leaves. So it isn't boosting up the business or the company paying out the leave. It is designed to break for that company to break even via the tax credits, of course. All right, for emergency FMLA, I think this is this is pretty much sunk in. I don't get a lot of questions for these anymore. It, it's just if the employee is unable to work or telework because their child does not have a, a child care provider because they're closed. Um, there is special documentation that can be requested for those children 14 and over because the thought process is, wait a minute, why would uh, why would some why would a parent need to kind of take off work to to help uh, you know to care for their 14 or, or 18 year old or 17 year old and and so they came out or the DOL clarified that you can request that the employee explain why they would need to do that for a child that's 14 and over and so that is part of the documentation request that you are not only allowed to ask for, but you must ask for in order to obtain the tax credits. The emergency paid sick leave provision is more complex because it covers more qualifying reasons. Most of the reasons are pretty straightforward. I would say the, the one that is that tripped us all up for a while was the first one. The employee is subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order related to COVID-19. And there was a lot of question about, well, the state of California has the shelter in place order. Does this mean now I have to provide all my employees for, or provide all my employees emergency paid sick leave because the state of California has shelter in place orders? The answer to that is no. So we are going to talk about that in more detail because I still do get questions on this one. And I understand why. I know why. When you read the answer that the DOL has provided and you see the technical jargon behind it, it's nuanced. And so anytime something is nuanced, it, it really takes uh, some extra thought to, to come out with the answer. Regarding documentation, I want to make sure that you all have seen that the IRS has a fax. They have a website. It, it, you can see it on the screen. You please do favorite that in your webinar or excuse me, your internet toolbar because you will go back to it many, many times. If you're like me, you go back to it. When you're on the IRS link, then you can look for questions 44 through 46, which discuss how to substantiate eligibility for the tax credit. You can also go to the DOL website, which should also be a favorite in your toolbar which is the uh, the FFCR Q&As, and questions 15 and 16 refer to what documentation you can request. I have gotten many questions around, do we have to, or can we require the employee to give us a doctor's note? And the answer in almost all of the cases is no. They do not have to provide a doctor's note. They have to provide a statement, including the doctor's name and why they cannot 
or, or and attest to the fact that they got an order that they can't work. But um, they, they, you cannot request a doctor's note. The bottom line, unless it's an FMLA eligible leave, because COVID nineteen has become a serious health condition under FMLA regulations. But the CARES Act, Pat was discussing the four hundred one k provisions earlier. But let's not forget that something really great came out of the CARES Act, and this is over the counter for drugs and menstrual products are back for the HSA, the FSA, and the HR participants. So this this is really is great news. And and immediately I started thinking, oh, is this forever, or or, or is this something that they're gonna they're going to uh, that's going to expire? Right now it's permanent. It is a permanent provision. Unless it's repealed, then we can just consider this to be something that, that is back for good. So good news there. A little bit of a tax break for those participants who had FSAs or an HSA or an HRA. For COVID-19 testing, there's no cost sharing for testing, including self-funded and fully insured plans. So all plans must cover testing with no cost sharing. That ends at the uh, that expires at the end of this public health emergency. So the DLL recently released guidance with regards to this, and self-funded plans should play or pay really close attention to that because if you're in a fully insured medical plan, your carrier is really the one that dictates what is covered and what is not. So the carrier has to pay close attention to this when it comes to fully insured plans. But if you're self-funded now, you're kind of out there on your own with your broker advisor, and a self-funded plan needs to be a little bit more hands-on. So that's why I say self-funded plans should pay closer attention to that, that guidance that was just released if you're in that process right now. And assistance for businesses in that CARES Act, oh, this was huge. And, and it continues to be a, a really big deal, those loans. And one of the loans with the SBA is the Payroll Protection Program. Uh, obviously, uh, as, your, as an insurance brokerage firm, Bolton is not an expert in the SBA loans. We certainly have a lot of information we can talk about with regards to it. But what we're seeing is the conversation is happening between the employer and the accountant or the CPA or the lender or the banker, especially employers with existing loans are probably already in conversations with their banker and have already applied, frankly. I know a lot of people were lined up to do that. In the 401k provisions, we we Pat did talk about that. Uh, two, I like to think of this as there are two provisions that are that are major there. It's the loan provision and the hardship withdrawals. Although, Pat, you mentioned the waivers of, um, I think they call it RMD, required minimum distrib- distribution. And I, at first when you mentioned it, I I was like, oh, what, who would, you know, why is that helpful? I, I don't. I don't get it. They, you don't, you, people want money right now. They don't, they, they don't want to not take it out. But then when you said, oh, the market is down, then that's yeah. when it clicked for me. Of course you don't yeah. want to take your money out right now. Yeah. So it makes total sense. And you know, and something else I, I probably should have added when you talked about the payroll protection program. Uh, so again, our understanding also is that that, that payroll protection program does cover retire, employer retirement plan contributions. 
So it and 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 that is uh, you know again something that obviously obviously each company is going to look at you know kind of case by case. Um, but for those companies that you know w- want to be able to continue to make their employer contributions, um, it, it is there for it. Okay, great. So takeaways in, in this section is really just ensure you're paying close attention to the guidance that's being released. That's why I mentioned favoriting that that or bookmarking the DOL and the IRS guidance. That way you can revisit it anytime you you come across a an area where you need some clarification and you can go straight to the source. If anything's updated, it's going to be on those pages. And and knowing and being okay with, or as okay as you can be, knowing that not all the answers are either available or clear. Now, Pat said earlier, he, he said something like, this is our understanding, or the record keeper understands it as this. So during this time, it's just that things aren't clear. There's not enough guidance. There's no precedent set. So there's no way for us to look back and say, oh, okay, this happened before and this is what you do. And so the answers aren't readily available and there is some gray area. And so at the end of the day, as the employer, it's sometimes you just have to make the best decision or the, the decision that you think works for your company and that you can stand behind and maybe even stand behind on the advice of, of legal counsel, depending on the issue. All right, TPT, toilet paper talk. This is where we're just going to discuss some relevant issues, what we saw last week. We start off with some from the benefits-related aspects that I've heard from employers and team members throughout the, the week. The first one I would say I've gotten several different questions regarding FSAs and changes that one can make to an FSA. So I had a few employers say that they had heard that the IRS came out with relaxed rules or expanded rules under Section 125, which could then allow someone to make a change under the FSA. Uh, That is not accurate at this point. There's been no expanded rules, no relaxed rules, and no guidance either. So the IRS has been very quiet on the Section 125 front. What does that mean? It just means that the same rules that applied before apply right now during this time. One of the things that I can say is we get the question, can my employee make a dependent care FSA change because their daycare provider is not is not operating? And yes, yes, you can. That is absolutely a change that you can make. It's under the qualifying events that we would entitle as an increase or decrease in the cost of qualifying expenses. So if your daycare provider closes, you've got a significant drop in cost, which means, yes, you can make a corresponding change. And so if you stop your contributions, which I did a couple weeks ago because I have children and I was paying for dependent care, if you stop, when the daycare provider goes back into operation, you can then jump back into your dependent care FSA uh, contribution. You can absolutely do that. So you can drop, you can stop them now, and then you can restart them later, as long as, as it's because there was a, a, a decrease in cost. For FSCRA, 
I saw some questions still coming through uh, regarding furloughed employees and laid off employees not being eligible or, or excuse me, being eligible for leave. And, and we had plan or we had employers who were getting ready, unfortunately, getting ready to lay off a good amount of staff. And there was some confusion. They thought they would have to then pay out under the FFCRA leave. I wanted to clarify that none of the FFCRA leave should be paid out just due to a furlough or a layoff. Those employees, their resource is unemployment. So they can access unemployment. In which right now, unemployment in the state of California, and probably a lot more states as well, with that $600 weekly boost, I'm hearing from employers that their employees are making more money uh, not working. And so I imagine that, you know, you can probably imagine the scenarios where an employee might not want to be working right now, uh, which is probably a conversation for another day, but it is interesting. And then under FFCRA, the other, the other item that I'm seeing or issue I'm seeing is, is there, we're still seeing a lot of voluntary self-quarantine confusion. Employees who are, who are voluntarily staying home and not going into work because they, they're fearful, which we can all understand. But in general, voluntary self-quarantines are not going to result in a paid leave under FFCRA. So the employees should understand that. They may not be happy with that, but they, they should at least understand that. And then, Pat, you and I talked earlier. You've seen a few things as well. So you kind of want to, I know you've, you've touched on some of these, but maybe kind of touch on them again. Just to put yeah, them in perspective. Well, you know, that, that, that on, the, on the payroll protection program, um, that w was actually addressed. Uh, the Treasury Department, I think on April 6th, put out a frequently asked, uh, an FAQ uh, sheet that specifically addressed the uh, ability to use uh, th th those proceeds for retirement plan contributions. And it, importantly, um, it, it is not includable in that $100,000 cap on, uh, on, on employee payments. So the, the retirement plan contributions technically are sort of over and above that. So that's kind of important to, to note. Um, and good news for you know some plans that are wanting wanting to pursue that. Um, yeah, and I think you know the other big question that we've been getting a lot has been you know to what degree we talked about this. Do we have to notify our our participants? And again, you know the answer is there is no you know requirement to do that. Although um, particularly you know with these uh, with a six month. A window on the loans. It, it it is probably something that in, in some way you, you do want to publicize, um, and then that kind of leads into the plan sponsor decisions. Um, you know, again, there's no there's no deadline for this. Um, you know, some record keepers, uh, and you want to check with yours, but some record keepers, you know, either either had an opt in or an opt out policy meaning that you as a plan sponsor would either, you know, in some cases, um, you know, if you don't tell them, they're automatically going to add these provisions to your plan. And then in other cases, you know, you, you actually have to verbally, you know, take the time to tell the record keeper you want to do it. Um, but, but regardless, there, you know, there is no timeline to do this. But, but again, you know, because uh, the distributions 
can only be taken during this year and the loans can only be taken for the next six months. You know, it obviously is something that, you know, all plan sponsors want to probably start considering. And I did see a question to uh, Michelle, I think, asking if um, if these if, if, if these provisions apply to all, all retirement plans. And it, es it essentially does. Um, but again, the only exception, I don't know if I mentioned it, um, the waiver on um, RMDs, I believe, does not apply to um, defined benefit plans. Um, but you know the the rest of these provisions apply to you know virtually every every qualified plan um we have not seen anything on on like non qualified retirement plans so and pat if someone who doesn't know the difference between qualified and non qualified is a simple ira a, a qualified plan yeah so that would be under yeah qualified you know it's under ERISA so yeah that would be kind of in that same umbrella as ira 401k 403b yeah Okay, got it. Thank you. I do want to say now that someone, thank you to the person who who um, informed us that it looks like the SBA announced earlier this morning that the PP money is gone. I haven't seen that, but that's because I don't follow the PPP money in the course of my my uh, my job here at Bolton. Uh, but thank you to the person who wrote in and, and let us know that it does seem like that money is gone. At least for now, maybe they'll write in or they'll revise the amount or maybe they'll put out more legislation adding money to it. But that is, that is interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my, it sure seems like there's going to be more to come. <clears throat> more to come I agree. Right. And I, I think something else we're seeing is, um, you know, to what degree is there going to be more to come on? Um, provisions surrounding employer contributions. Um, you know, I think, Michelle, that's something else that I think this week, you know, as people kind of move on to other things, um, mm -hmm. I think employers are now considering to what degree, uh, I know a lot of our, our conversations this week with plan sponsors has been, okay, if we, you know, if we want to suspend our employer contribution to the plan, you know, our matching contribution, our safe harbor contribution, what's involved in that? Um, and that answer really, you know, it d depends on a lot of things, including, you know, what type of match it is, what type of employer contribution it is, how the plan document reads, if it's discretionary, if it's not discretionary. So, but, but I, I, you know, I think that is something that, uh, you know, more, again, this week, more sponsors are looking at. And the thought is that, um, there may be another round of sort of CARES Act related provisions um, that would make it a lot easier for uh, employers to um, do away with, with those contributions if, if, if they need to um, and not have to terminate the plan to do so. So more, you know, uh -huh. everything right. more. Something to watch more out for, come, right? More to come on all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're getting close to 11 o'clock hour, and this is about the time where I say, or, you know, about the hour mark, I should say, depending on what time zone you're in. We're getting close to about the time where, where you may want to log off. We completely understand. Please know that a recording will be available. In fact, you can subscribe to iTunes, and the podcast for this episode will be uh, loaded or available probably, we're hopeful, Wednesday of next week. 
And you can also subscribe and listen to the last episode, last two episodes as well. So you can do that. You would just look for compliance talk, Kamayo's compliance talk. So if you need to drop off, we understand. We will send a recording link and we will also send a list of the questions and answers that were posed today by the attendees. So you can look for that email as well. I know some of you will stay on the line so we can get to your questions. And also we just have a few slides left that we want to go through here. You know, you know, Regarding I'll, say the, the, mm -hmm. I'll say this really yes, quick. You know, on, on our website, we actually have a, a you know, pretty in-depth um, recording of a WebEx on this too that gets really into the weeds, you know, even more on this. So um, folks are certainly welcome to um, go there at some point if they wanted to get more details on, on these uh, retirement plan related CARES Act provisions. Right. Yes, I do have that link in the slides, which you will also get in the post um, discussion email. So, yes, it's planresourcegroup.com. So you can go to planresourcegroup.com. And the all uh, I assume that you go really in depth on this WebEx recording. And right when you get to the site on the left-hand side of the page, then you can register to hear the recording so that you can see more details there. I did have a few people ask, you know, they wanted more details to, to see visually. And that isn't, you know, that's not what we we're talking about today on the podcast. We didn't have a lot of details other than just a discussion. So if you wanted more details, go to planresourcegroup.com yeah, and listen we to a, that WebEx. That's a good point. We have a full deck there and uh, a pretty good guest speaker that was involved with pushing some of these provisions through Congress. So, um, yeah, that, that'll be a good resource. Okay, so we'll quickly finish up and then take some questions and answers. Regarding the wish list, this has been the same every time we've talked thus far because there hasn't been any guidance yet. We want that Section 125 guidance. We would like some guidance on ACA measurements and stability periods and how they're going to interact with those that have been, who are not working. Maybe they, they won't account for anything, but we're wondering if they will. Extending COBRA grace periods. I did see a step in the right direction. I saw this last week, and I haven't seen any buzz around it since then. But, you know, Pat mentioned as well that there, there's this feeling that there's more to come with regards to changes in legislation and packages and bills in the House. So we will see. We'll just have to continue to keep track of that. I had a, a very good question from a school, and I'm sure that we have a few schools on the line. So specific to schools with spring breaks where the staff would otherwise not be working, if the employee is on EFMLA, can the week the school is closed for spring break be counted in the 12-week cap? The answer is no, because the employee would not otherwise be working. So if we have some schools on the line, and if you had that same question, hopefully this is helpful. Specific to schools with spring breaks, again, where staff would otherwise not be working, what about the EFMLA and the EPSL payments, the actual payments? Should the school make payments during the weeks that the school is closed for spring break? Again, the answer is no, because the employee would not otherwise be working. Now, this question is an employment-related question versus 
my specialty, which is benefits related. And so I had to go to our employment experts at Fisher Phillips and, and pose this question to them. So they are the ones that provided this answer for me. Next week on the podcast, we are going to have a, a partner from Fisher Phillips be the guest speaker. So they can provide some more details as well. The company that has fewer than 50 employees uh, granting emergency FMLA would create a hardship, let's say, and, and it would be difficult administra administratively, but the business would continue to operate. Under those circumstances, can the employer deny leave to an eligible individual or employee? And the answer is maybe. The reason this is, continues to be something I talk about is that I want to ensure that our smaller employers with fewer than 50 employees realize that they are not completely exempt from FFCRA leave. It is what we call a narrow exemption. So we just want to be sure that you, that you, if you're an employer here, that you're aware of that. The question I've gotten is if an employee went out on leave, say, starting March 15th for a qualifying reason under FFCRA, do we have to pay the employee? Well, no, the leave is not retroactive, but these provisions apply to leave taken between April 1st and the end of the year. So if the employee qualifies for FFCRA after April 1, the employer cannot deny that paid sick leave starting April 1. And here is the question that I believe is still, still hard to grasp the answer because it's so nuanced. Would statewide shelter at home orders qualify as a quarantine or isolation order that triggers broad eligibility for emergency leave? And it's possible, but it's not likely, definitely not here in California. And, and so here's what we want to look at. The federal or the state or the local quarantine order that's in place, it must cause the employee to be unable to work or to telework, even though the employer has work that could be performed, but for the order. So if your employee has the option to telework, it's going to be, it would be almost impossible for them to qualify under a shelter at home order of the leave. Now, if the employer does not have work to offer due to the order, this is not a qualifying reason to take leave. So this is for those employers that are having to lay off some staff or, or do some furloughs. That means there's no work available. So there would be no qualifying reason for leave under the shelter at home uh, reason under FFCRA. So I, I like to take this question in a few steps when, when employers ask me. I would first say, do you have work that the employee can do? And if the answer is no, then I immediately say, okay, this does not qualify for FSBRA. And then my employee had a reduction of pay but not hours. Can they make plan election changes? There are really no permissible status changes that speak to a reduction in pay. It would really be something that goes alongside a reduction of hours, but I've seen employers reducing pay but not hours. And right now there's no permissible reason. Although, as we talked about before, you know, as the employer, you might want to extend 
a little bit of flexibility with regards to this just because we're in the public health emergency. We haven't heard from the IRS that they are going to extend some flexibility. We have not seen that, but some employers may decide to do that. We, we just cannot imagine that the IRS is going to penalize employers for allowing a change that would be for the good of the employee during a public health emergency. First responders uh, are excluded from FFCRA. So here we, we show what's a provider and what's a first responder in case you have not yet seen that. And what records do you need to maintain when your employee goes out on leave? I still see that question. So you'll want to make sure you, you can refer to the slides prior when you receive them or just go to the DOL website. I think that's the easiest way to do that. Continue to get asked whether an employee can refuse to come to work because of fear of infection. The answer is not yes or no because it depends on facts and circumstances. So I would say if you're in a situation where you need to pose this question, you should reach out to an employment law attorney. All right, some resources that you can look to. You can subscribe to the Bolton blog at boltonco.com slash blog. If for benefit-related questions, Bolton clients should, should feel free to continue to contact their team. For the 401k provisions in the CARES Act, there we have plannedresourcegroup.com. You can go to the left side of the page to access the WebEx, and there's a slide deck there, and you can listen to the recording. And Pat was telling me that the, the speaker was, is really uh, notable and, and highly sought after, so I definitely suggest taking a look at that. And before we go to questions, I just want to make sure that everyone knows that you can subscribe to Kamayo's Compliance Talk on the, in the iTunes app. So if you want to go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, you can go back and listen to previous episodes or you can listen uh, via po the, the uh, podcast for future episodes as well. All right. So let's take some questions here. Pat, did you see any questions there that, that um, were posed that you could address before I jump in? No, I, I, I think I've addressed the ones so far I've seen on uh, retirement plan related uh, issues, but I'll, but I'll keep looking. Okay, got it. All right. I see several on FFCRA, so let me take a look here. For a change to the dependent care FSA, does it have to be that the daycare opens, closes, or can it be that the employee does or does not need the child care? Now, it can be for both. What I gave an example of is when the daycare closes and then reopens, because that's the most common right now. But there could also be a permissible event that occurs when the employee does or does not need child care. So, um, so you can watch for that as well. So it's hard for me to say in general that, yes, it could be. It depends on what is, why doesn't the employee need the child care might drive a, one of the permissible, permissible status changes. If we are calling essential employees back to work for essential services and they do not want to work and it does not fall under FFCRA qualifying reasons, does this affect their ability to get unemployment benefits? Yes, it very well might. Um, unemployment has, benefits have certainly expanded to account for COVID-19. And so you want to check out the, C, the California EDD website if you're here in California to understand what it's expanded to. 
I will say if, if there's not a doctor's order and they just don't want to come to work and there's no doctor's order or advice behind that, that I do not believe that they would be eligible for unemployment benefits. Someone asked if an employer has committed to paying its employees through the end of the year, can, how can EFMLA be enforced? If there's no reduction in pay, then the, the paid provision part of EFMLA would not be relevant. The paid sick time only comes into play when the employee has experienced a reduction in pay due to the qualifying reason. And um, so as far as, you know, if someone still wants to go on EFMLA, but they're not going to be paid under EFMLA because they're already getting their regular paycheck, that's, that's probably not very likely at all. So practically that situation would not present itself once that, that, that there, there's an understanding that there, there's no paid sick time if the employee is receiving the regular paycheck. There has to be a reduction in pay. What do doctors do during this time if they become ill aside from workers' comp? Do they qualify for any of these paid benefits? Great question. Doctors or healthcare providers are, can be excluded under FSCRA leave. Now, there's nothing that would stop an employer of healthcare providers or doctors uh, to be more generous. So even though they can exclude these employees, they don't have to. They certainly do not have to. So you could decide as an organization that you will abide by FSCRA rules, even though you technically don't have to because you're a healthcare provider. Uh, you're an employer of healthcare providers. That's made at the, at the employer level. So you can either decide to do that or not to do that. Yes, I will provide copies of the slides that will come from our Bolton marketing team and that will come, that will, those will be sent out on Monday. See, so I'll take a few more questions here. I had some questions, but they're not complete. So it's hard for me to, to know what context it's being asked in. Well, my apologies for that. Here is one where an employee is requesting to take time off because uh, the school has closed. And um, so then the employer sent back, you know, asking the employee to provide, uh, you know, a statement, you know, why this would affect him working his normal hours. And the employee has not replied. And the question is, how long do I have to wait for him to reply? And what if he doesn't? Is this a no-call, no-show termination? That is a fantastic question. It's employment-related, so I will not be able to answer that question on this call, but I will say that next week we do have an employment attorney as our guest speaker, and she will be a, uh, she's a partner at Fisher Phillips. So this would be, next week's episode would be a great time to pose that question. Someone asked me to address again if employees can reduce their dependent care. Yes, they can, as long as their, their cost was decreased due to child care closure. So if there was a change in cost that was a decrease, which most of us have experienced, because if the child care provider closes, then we've got, we're no longer paying. And that is a change in cost. And so the employee can reduce their dependent care contributions. 
someone asked, what if someone has four children, two are above 14 and two are below? Does having the two below the age 14 bracket still qualify you? Yes, it does. And I would say further here that you wouldn't, in this instance, even need to provide that extra statement from the, or even need to gather an extra statement from the employee with regards to the over 14. And that's because they have two children that are under 14. All right, that looks like that looks like that's all it is for today. And we'll hope to to see you next week. Thanks everyone. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for, for having us for having us and, and doing this. What a great resource. Thank you. Thank you. Bye everyone.